right. Well, I think a few more people are trickling in, um, but while they do that, I'd rather they miss my introduction um, than Professor Looney's talk. Um, so welcome um, to all of you joining from near and far. I'm Meg Rithmeyer, I'm a professor at the Harvard Business School, um, and I am the organizer of the China Economy Seminar for the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies. And this is our first event um, of the academic year 2020-2021. Um, and it's my absolute pleasure first to thank the Fairbanks Center for doing this, especially Mark Grady for organizing, um, but to introduce uh, Professor Kristen Looney. Uh, Kristen Looney is a assistant professor at Georgetown School of, Public, of, School of Foreign Service. Um, she's a specialist on politics of Asia, which you'll hear more about. And she's speaking about um, a book that came out this spring um, called Rural Modern, Mobilizing, what? Rural Modernization in East Asia. I've only read a thousand versions of the book. Um, she also has a forthcoming article at World Politics that'll be out this spring about different aspects of the uh, policy diffusion and learning relationship among different countries in East Asia as they went about modernizing the countryside. Um, Kristen is a rare example of a scholar who compares China um, quite legitimately to other regimes, especially in East Asia. The book is about Taiwan and Korea, as well as China, as you'll hear about here. I encourage anyone um, who is interested in rural development, Chinese politics, or politics of East Asia um, to read this excellent book. And we're, it's a great privilege to have you here, Kristen. So um, Chris, Professor Looney will speak for about uh, 45 minutes, and then we'll have a Q&A session. Um, but thanks all for being here. And thank you, Professor Looney, for joining us. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much, Meg, for the introduction. And thank you to Mark Grady and everyone at the Fairbanks Center for inviting me here and organizing this event. Um, so let me just share my screen really quick. Okay, I hope everybody can see that. Okay, hold on. All right. Um, so basically, like many people, so the, the title of my talk today is Rural Development in China and East Asia. Um, and uh, like many people's first books, um, it, it started out as a dissertation that I actually wrote at um, Harvard with the help and guidance of this Perry, Tim Colton, um, and the Fairbanks Center librarian, Nancy Hurst. Um, and so being able to present the findings of this research with um, the Fairbanks Center is kind of a special um, homecoming for me. And I really appreciate you having me here today. Um, okay, here we go. Okay, sorry about that. All right. Um, so the presentation is organized as follows. Um, there are three parts. First, I'm gonna go over the research problem, um, looking at rural development in East Asia. Second, I'll present the argument and also um, talk about how to understand variation in the region. And then lastly, I'll conclude with some implications for the so-called East Asian model. So I just wanna begin with uh, the problem and a definition. So I define rural development in the study as improvements in agricultural production, rural living standards, and the village environment. Um, and to give you some specific measures, I'm talking about agricultural growth rates, crop yields, household income, village infrastructure, sanitation, and housing. Um, and the book answers two main questions about rural development. So the first question is why has East Asia achieved better rural development outcomes than other regions? And the second question is why have some East Asian countries performed better than others in terms of rural development? 
So the first question really deals with the relative success of East Asia, and the second deals with variation in East Asia among different East Asian countries. Now, um, it's worth reflecting for a minute about why rural development is important, because I think unless you're from the countryside, you may not have given this issue uh, too much thought before. According to the World Bank, 78% of the world's poor still live in rural areas, and they depend on agriculture for their livelihood. Um, the vast majority of people suffering from hunger are also smallholders, small farmers that live in rural areas. And in a lot of developing countries, agriculture still accounts for a significant portion of GDP and employment. So rural development therefore matters for poverty reduction, for food security, and for economic growth. Yet governments routinely fail their rural citizens. Um, urban bias uh, has been described by scholars such as Michael Lipton and Robert Bates. Uh, as a belief in the superiority of industry over agriculture and um, cities over villages and as the engines of growth and modernization. And this belief translates into a policy environment that systematically discriminates against agriculture as seen in different price, trade and investment policies that favor the urban industrial sector. Um, as they point out, however, rural development and industrialization don't necessarily go together. You can have urban industrial growth occurring alongside rural stagnation and poverty. Now, it's true that we don't really think of East Asia as rural anymore. Quite the opposite, we think of East Asia as home to some of the world's most dynamic megacities. Um, but of course, if we go back in time to the immediate post-World War II period, before industrialization, the region really took off, most people were living as poor farmers. In 1949, Wolf Ledeginski, who previously worked on agrarian issues for the US government and the World Bank, he made the following observation about Taiwan. He wrote, of all the farmyards I have seen in the Far East, Southeast Asia, and in the Middle East, that of the average Taiwanese tenant is among the worst, both in appearance and in equipment. Tenants hunt so-called so barnyards, equip, barnyards, equipment, and livestock, as well as their health, point to nothing but poverty. Now, Taiwan remained mostly rural for the next two decades. But by the 1970s, the relative decline of agriculture had become apparent. And this was also true for the region as a whole. So just to give you a snapshot, as you can see here, East Asia is represented by the blue line on the graph, and it shows agricultural GDP by region and its steady decline over time. And this one shows the declining share of the rural population by region, again, with East Asia being represented by the blue line on this graph. Now, agriculture's decline is even more apparent when you look at the individual country level. So here we have agriculture's uh, contribution to GDP um, in Taiwan, Korea, and China, and the stark contrast or drop in agriculture's contribution between 1953 and 2010. And that's also mirrored in terms of employment. In China, we still have a large, relatively large agricultural workforce, about 37 or 38% of the population, but it's still significantly lower than it was um, at, at the beginning of the 50s or, or even at the beginning of the reform era in 1978. Um, and yet, uh, East Asia was more successful than other regions at achieving really high levels of production. So despite the relative decline of agriculture over time, we can see here we have comparative data on cereal yields. We can see East Asia 
challenges agricultural sector really taking off. Um, and I argue in the book that this is not just because agriculture became more. Um, so hopefully you're wondering why, um, why this is the case. Going back to the original question, why has East Asia achieved better development outcomes than other regions? Um, related questions that motivated the study included who benefited, who benefited from this uh, success in rural development? Was it just the state? Was it the urban industrial sector? Or was it farmers as well? Also, what about other aspects of rural development besides agricultural production, which is what the majority of literature focuses on? Remember, when I defined rural development, I said we also need to consider living standards and then changes to the village environment, the physical environment at which farmers reside. Um, and then finally, how did the region deal with the problem of agricultural adjustment as industrialization deepened? So agricultural adjustment here just refers to the declining share of agriculture's uh, position in the economy and its declining performance. And then, of course, finally, what about variation across East Asia? What I presented before were just kind of an aggregate picture of what the region as a whole looked like. So these were some of the questions that motivated my study. And what I found is that if we take a close look at the region, it becomes pretty obvious that different types of development outcomes were achieved in different ways and at different times and to different degrees. Um, and I assert that previous studies have not really adequately explored this variation. Um, and furthermore, they've ignored a pretty important and very curious effect about East Asia, which is that after decades of exploiting agriculture for the sake of industrialization, East Asian countries reversed course. And they tried very intentionally to stimulate rural development, but not in the way that you might think. Uh, so instead of just removing market distortions, or alternatively providing protections and subsidies to farmers, which are normal measures adopted by countries who are dealing with agricultural adjustment. These countries did something more. They relied on mass mobilization campaigns to achieve breakthroughs in rural development. So that brings me to the argument of the book. Um, and the main argument can be summarized as follows in the following few points. So first, I argue that during the early stages of industrialization, certain institutions facilitated growth in agricultural production. In Taiwan and South Korea, as well as Japan, these institutions included smallholder farming systems that were grounded in secure private property rights to land, also technocratic bureaucracies, not just in industry, but also agriculture. Um, and the presence of encompassing farmers organizations, um, encompassing in the sense that nearly over 95%, almost the entire rural population belonged to those organizations. And in China as well, despite some differences, there was a rural institutional convergence that took place in the 1980s between China and its neighbors. Um, although of course there's some differences that I'll get into as well. Um, so that's the first part of the argument. However, progress in other areas besides production was undercut by urban bias. There are different ways of measuring urban bias. So the most common way is to look at the nominal and relative rates of assistance to agriculture. These are measures developed and used by the World Bank, which essentially compare domestic farm prices to non-farm prices and also to international prices to measure the extent to which the, the state is discriminating against agriculture. Um, urban bias can also be seen in the import of cheap surplus food, uh, which was really common in South Korea, Taiwan, and Japan. In the post-war period, they imported massive amounts of food 
from the United States, which had the effect of driving down prices, domestic prices in agriculture. And then of course, the share of government investment too, measuring how much the government is spending on the countryside versus other parts and places in the economy is one way of getting at urban bias. And so besides this growth in production, urban bias meant that progress in other areas such as farmers' incomes and their housing and, and living environment did not keep pace with those gains in production. So during the later stages of industrialization, campaigns led to further gains in these other areas in terms of rural living standards in the village environment. Um, we could get into a discussion about what campaigns are in a more kind of theoretical discussion in the Q&A if you'd like, but for now I'll just provide you with a simple definition. Um, rural modernization campaigns, I uh, assert, are policies that demand high levels of bureaucratic and popular mobilization to overhaul traditional ways of life in the countryside. Um, and then finally, I argue that variation in region can be explained by the interplay between campaigns and institutions. So these are kind of the four parts of the argument in the book. On this last point, I just want to explain a little bit more what I mean by interplay. So by interplay, I mean two things. First, um, institutions and campaigns matter for different types of outcomes. Uh, so, for example, strong and effective institutions such as farmers organizations are necessary for achieving complex goals like the promotion of scientific agriculture, whereas campaigns are useful for basic construction projects and other things that are technically simpler. Um, so these different things, institutions and campaigns, matter for different types of outcomes in the region. And then second, by interplay, I mean that the quality of rural institutions affects campaign outcomes. And the key institutions that I analyze in the book are local governments and farmers organizations. And as I'll explain in a minute, campaigns are more likely to succeed if there are strong checks on local governments from above and below. And if there are farmers organizations to represent villagers' interests and really involve farmers in campaign implementation. So without these things, I argue that campaigns can very easily spiral out of control. So that's the argument of the book, but what about alternative theories? There are at least three types of explanations that deserve mentioning. These are explanations that I don't completely negate or discredit, but rather um, I come to the conclusion that they're rather incomplete. Um, so the first is initial conditions. So according to these scholars, East Asia inherited favorable initial conditions for rural development. In Korea and Taiwan, Japanese colonial authorities invested heavily in rural institutions and infrastructure, which aided agriculture's quick recovery after World War II. Um, China under Mao also sought increased state penetration of the countryside. And during the late Maoist period, the spread of irrigation and green revolution technologies, such as improved seed varieties and chemical inputs. So I'm referring to the green revolution of the late Maoist period of the uh, 1960s and, and 1970s. Um, a second alternative theory is land reform. This is probably um, a well-known theory to people who have, uh, anyone who studied East Asia. Um, this argument goes that US-backed land reforms in the region led to the elimination of large landowners, and it turned the vast majority of tenant farmers into owners of their land. This had the effect of stabilizing the country politically, um, creating a more equal distribution of income in the countryside, um, which neutralized the threat of communism, um, and it led to significant gains in production, at least in the short term. 
Um, and with regards to China, the argument goes that decollectivization had a very similar impact on the rural economy as did the post-war land reforms that the US sponsored in the region. The third um, alternative explanation for East Asia's success in rural development is the rise of developmental states. And according to these scholars, East Asia benefited from the presence of technocratic bureaucracies, and with that, a technical, rational approach to policymaking. Um, the region, uh, these, these scholars state, also had lower levels of urban bias than other places. Um, and because of high rural population densities, these, these countries benefited from having a really large pool of surplus labor, which brings me to the Lewis model. According to this model, which was made famous by W. Arthur Lewis in 1954, the reallocation of labor from agricultural to industry fuels growth, eventually leading to a more efficient and balanced economy. So I'm gonna spare you from a lengthy critique of each one of these and instead just point out a few common issues with them. Um, in general, they focus too much on the positive. Um, and they, when in reality, the legacies of colonialism, Maoism, land reform, and developmental states, uh, these legacies were quite mixed. They also tend to ignore variation in the region. They assume that because gains in production were strong, so too were gains in other areas. Um, they have little to say about differences among countries and for the most part exclude China from the comparative analysis. Um, and then finally, some of the assumptions that they make about how developmental states operate are incorrect. Um, and the main incorrect assumption is that they don't engage in revolutionary campaign like politics. Most of this literature dismisses campaigns as these kind of ill-conceived, illiberal deviations from an otherwise successful development strategy. So the book therefore attempts to qualify existing theories of East Asian rural development and develops this new argument to explain variation among East Asian countries. Um, in terms of case selection, the, the study covers Taiwan, South Korea, and China. Um, the decades listed here um, were chosen because they represent the most significant years for both industrialization and rural development. I should also note that the 1970s in Taiwan and South Korea, as well as the 2000s in China, uh, represent the beginning of agricultural adjustment in, in these countries. That is the moment when government policy shifted away from urban bias and moved towards um, an explicit pro-rural development agenda. Um, I treat each of these cases as successful, but to, to varying degrees, with Taiwan being the most successful, South Korea being somewhat less successful, a mixed case, and then China being the least successful of the three. Um, certainly with any comparative project, there are variables that cannot be controlled, but I should point out that there are also similarities among these three cases. Um, so first, they are, at least for the period of study, all authoritarian regimes. They've all been characterized as developmental states. And the resemblances in rural policy are quite striking, in part because uh, these, these countries look to one another's experiences in formulating their rural policy. Um, there's significant differences as well, um, including colonial legacies. And I'm not just talking about the fact that China was not colonized by Japan in the same way um, that Taiwan and South Korea were, but rather that 
Japan's own colonial legacy in Korea and Taiwan was, was variable, it differed. Um, also the nature of US assistance to Taiwan and South Korea differed. And then of course, the scale of the state. I mean, China's the size of the continent. It is much, much larger than these other places. And I try to address and account for those differences um, in the book. I also include Japan in the theoretical chapter of the book as an illustrative case, meaning that I use it to demonstrate preliminary support for the argument before I apply it more rigorously in the empirical chapters to the other cases. Um, I didn't include it as a fully developed case only because its rural modernization process started a full century before all of these other cases. So including it would have just been a much, a much more complicated study. So the book falls within the tradition of comparative historical analysis. Specifically, um, I combine cross-case and within-case analysis to make inferences about, about East Asian rural development. And the research is based on more than two years of field work in Asia, where I collected a lot of um, archival and library-based uh, documentary materials. Um, and in China, because that case, the period um, that I was studying is more contemporary, I spent significant time in the countryside where I conducted numerous interviews with local officials and villagers. Just to remind you of the main argument, these are the kind of four critical points. During the early stages of industrialization, certain institutions facilitated growth and production, progress in other areas was undercut by urban bias. Then at the later stages of industrialization, campaigns led to further gains in rural living standards in the village environment. And finally, variation can be explained by the interplay between campaigns and institutions. Um, institutions and campaigns are, so to speak, the main independent or explanatory variables in the study. And in analyzing their effects, I develop a few key arguments and hypotheses. The first of these has to do with farmers' organizations, which I found to be extremely important um, in the East Asian context. Um, in the region, farmers' organizations are quasi-governmental, corporatist organizations that provide services to rural communities. And they're important because they transfer resources in and out of the rural sector. They provide essential agricultural extension services to smallholders. They assist the government with policy implementation. And in some cases, they represent farmers' interests and lobby or advocate for them politically. The main uh, examples that I examine in the book are the Farmers Association of Taiwan, the National Agricultural Farmers Association of South Korea, and the Farmers Professional Cooperatives of China, um, which in Chinese are the um, I argue that successful rural development is contingent on the strength of farmers' organizations. Um, I apologize for the text here, just bear with me for a second. Um, whether farmers' organizations are strong or weak really depends on two things. It depends on linkage and it depends on autonomy. Um, so specifically, I assert, with, I, I assert with regards to linkage that farmers organizations are more likely to benefit small farmers if they have an extensive membership base with strong ties to the village community and are formally linked to higher levels of the state that control key developmental resources. So the link to higher levels of the state is crucial because the higher levels of the state control key resources. And also it can't really be assumed that lower level officials are gonna be more supportive of rural development. Um, as I discuss in the book, urban bias can be entrenched even at the very, at the most local level of the state. Um, and sometimes uh, 
you know, policymakers that are more sympathetic to the plight of farmers and invested in their development are actually working at higher levels of the state. With regards to autonomy, I assert that farmers organizations are more likely to be developmental as opposed to primarily extractive agents of the state and big business if their leaders are actual farmers selected by farmer members, and if they have financial and managerial independence, giving them a certain degree of voice, political power, and influence um, over policy. So I'll come back to how these arguments map onto the cases in just a second. Um, but for now, I just want to present the main argument about campaigns. So these are the key arguments about farmers organizations. And um, here is what I uh, have to say about campaigns. So again, I define rural modernization campaigns as policies demanding high levels of bureaucratic and popular mobilization to overhaul traditional ways of life in the countryside. Um, in terms of their contribution to development, uh, campaigns are useful because they can galvanize and direct the country's resources towards certain ends. They can overcome local resistance and bureaucratic inertia. They can reduce the central uh, the cost of central policy implementation, um, and finally, they can speed up the pace of change in a way that um, it, you know officials in East Asia perceive as being um, more efficient than market based forces. Um, and the key examples that I analyze in the book are the community, the, I should say, the rural community development campaign of 1970s Taiwan. The New Village Movement, which took place in 1970s Korea, um, sometimes it's also called the New Community Movement, um, or the Semal Undong in Korean. Um, and then finally, I look at building a new socialist countryside, um, uh, which was a, a major policy campaign introduced by the Hu Jintao administration in the 2000s. And the main argument I make about campaigns is that successful rural development is conditional on the political institutional context in which the campaign takes place. So what I'm trying to do with this argument is push back against this kind of common, widely held idea that campaigns are doomed to fail, that they are these kind of Ill illiberal, great leap forward type policies that usually or almost always result in some kind of disaster. Um, and the argument of the book is, is, is that no, that doesn't always happen. Um, and that kind of view is not useful for understanding their prominence in East Asia. Um, and furthermore, under certain conditions, they can really be a powerful tool for change. So um, what are those conditions? So this is kind of the uh, core hypothesis uh, that I put forward about campaigns. Again, I apologize for all this text on your screen. Um, I argue that rural modernization campaigns are more likely to work that has produced policy compliance and positive outcomes when the state's goal is rural development rather than extraction, when the central government can control local authorities, and when the campaign is carried out in partnership with rural citizens. So to break this down for you just a little bit, I argue that campaigns are, uh, in order to work, they must have clear developmental goals, strong bureaucratic controls, and finally, uh, a high level of rural participation. Okay, so um, here is how the argument work on maps onto the cases. Um, I'm going to break this down for you. Hopefully, make this table more readable. Um, I find that Taiwan was the most successful case. It had the most successful record of rural development because its farmers organizations, the National Farmers Association of Taiwan, had really high levels of linkage to the state and to farmers and also autonomy, even though it was closely linked to 
the state, it also had a high degree of autonomy over its leaders, its finances, and its operations. Moreover, the rural community development campaign of the 1970s was quite successful because it had rather clear developmental goals. Um, the central government in Taiwan was able to exert control and oversight over local authorities, and in part because the farmers associations were so strong, rural participation during the community development campaign was also very high and of a high quality. In contrast, in South Korea, the National Agricultural Cooperative Federation, or the NACF, possessed linkage, but it did not possess autonomy. So one difference with the FAs is that um, farmers did not choose the leaders of their local cooperative, whereas farmers in Taiwan regularly voted, voted in elections. So that's just one measure of autonomy. Um, and the new village movement um, was also less participatory. So like Taiwan, it also had clear developmental goals. The central government was also able to oversee what local officials were doing, but the quality of participation was somewhat lacking. Um, and just to give you one example, the NACF during the new village movement oversaw the rollout of a new high yield variety of rice called tongyil, uh, which translates as uh, reunification. Um, and this was a high yield variety that held a lot of promise. It led to increased rice yields for a few years, but then it ended in disaster, ecological and financial disaster for many farmers because it was vulnerable to cold weather and crop disease. Um, and there was a lot of resistance from farmers that was expressed towards the NACF, but they basically uh, steamrolled the project. And as a result of its failure, um, you know, the campaign uh, was not as successful. I mean, based on my comparative analysis, I conclude that something like that, this kind of compulsory rollout of a high yield variety of rice, essentially using a campaign to promote scientific agriculture, uh, just most likely would never have happened um, in Taiwan. And then finally, the case that probably all of you on this call are most interested in, um, China. In that case, I argue that the farmers professional cooperatives are just qualitatively different from their counterparts in the rest of East Asia. They possess neither linkage nor autonomy, and they were treated by the state in the, in the decade of the 2000s as really a target of building a new socialist countryside of that campaign rather than as partners in campaign implementation. Um, Participation in building a new socialist countryside was also really lacking outside of the farmers professional cooperatives. Um, I did research in a part of China called um, Ganzhou, which is a prefectural city in southern Jiangxi province. I went there because it had become famous for organizing um, these groups called peasant councils, at the village level. And the whole purpose of peasant councils was to make building a new socialist countryside a participatory campaign. Um, they were also promoting the FPCs, the Farmers Professional Cooperatives. Um, but after doing my field research there, I concluded that the quality of rural participation was really lacking. Um, Jiangxi was one of the few places in China that explicitly encouraged it. And even there, um, local officials really kind of just treated these farmers organizations as um, an appendage to their own efforts, right? An appendage to the state, something that could help them mobilize farmers, um, but from which they did not want any feedback or real input. Um, and it was also a scapegoat for them. So these organizations were used by officials um, to do things that officials were afraid to do, such as collect money for um, village infrastructure projects and persuade farmers to tear down their old homes. Um, and 
I conclude that building a one reason I think building new socialist countryside was just not as successful as the other campaigns um, is because it kind of collapsed into a housing policy. It initially had a very broad set of goals, but then towards the end of the campaign, um, it was almost exclusively focused on demolishing and rebuilding villagers' homes. Um, and I think it was a combination of these, these three things here, um, less clear developmental goals, reduced central control and, or relatively low levels of central control and mostly absent rural participation that led to that outcome. Um, I wanna note um, in terms of the theory that the claim I'm making, the argument I'm making that campaigns matter is empirical, it's not prescriptive. I don't want anybody to read my book and think that you know I'm advocating everybody in the world should undertake campaigns. Um, and the reason that I say it's just empirical, not prescriptive, is because positive outcomes are highly contingent. What happened in East Asia is not necessarily a viable or transportable development model. And the reason these outcomes are highly contingent is because they depend on a variety of variables and mechanisms that don't usually go together. So I just wanted to point out some of these tensions in the theory. Um, and the first is that the key explanatory variables, institutions and campaigns really follow different logics and they make different contributions to development. Um, but as hopefully the brief analysis of the cases just demonstrated, campaigns really do need institutions to succeed. They really do need strong local governments and strong, um, or I should say strong bureaucratic controls over local governments and also strong form farmers organizations to make sure that local officials are not overzealous and take things to extremes. I also make the point that campaigns work better with centralized bureaucratic control and decentralized rural participation. Again, things that don't usually go together, but in these cases uh, in Taiwan and South Korea especially did go together. And then finally, I make the point that farmers organizations are more effective if they possess both linkage and autonomy. Um, again, so the point of you know saying all of this is just to um, emphasize that the East Asian model is a model in the sense that I can identify these particular patterns to the region that explain development outcomes, but it's, it's difficult to transport that uh, or to you know, use it as a prescriptive model for other developing countries. And then I want to spend just one minute or two talking about the transition from urban bias in these places. Um, why did these governments adopt pro-rural policies? Um, I argue that in each case, fast-paced industrialization led to a deterioration of rural conditions and pressures to adopt rural policies. And it's hard to say precisely what exactly caused policy change without more access to the inner workings of these governments. But I believe that these factors I've listed here were important. So first in Taiwan and South Korea, despite um, them being authoritarian countries during this time period, there were elections. Um, in the late 1960s, um, a group of pro-rural legislators was elected to the provincial UN and the legislative UN um, in Taiwan. And they, um, advocated for the abolition of the what was called the rice fertilizer bar barter system. It was this is an exploitive um, system that the state controlled where they determined rice and fertilizer prices. Um, and that led to the ushering in of these kind of new pro-rural policies. And in South Korea, one reason why Park Chung-hee reversed course in the 1970s is because he was challenged by opposition candidates who ran for the presidency in 1967 and 1971. And he still won those elections handily, but he lost support from the vast majority of farmers in the Chola region, um, the rice bowl of Korea. And that really 
concerned him. It indicated to him that his rural support and legitimacy could not be taken for granted, especially at a time where anti-park sentiment was on the rise in urban areas. He really wanted to shore up his support in the countryside to counterbalance that. Another issue was food security. So um, in the late 60s, early 70s, the US reduced and then announced that it was going to eventually totally cut off its food aid to Taiwan and South Korea, which increased policymakers' concerns about domestic food supply. And then in China, um, in the late 90s, there was a decline, not only in, in the amount of arable land available, but also in grain output that really concerned Jiang Zemin and then Hu Jintao when he stepped into office. Um, so concerns about food security in China were very real in the early 2000s. Um, migration was also a factor in these cases um, that relates to food security um, because as more people move from the countryside to the cities, um, it exacerbates people's uh, policymakers' concerns about the food supply in the countryside. Um, this was true for all three of those cases. And then in the Chinese case too, uh, protest was a major issue. Um, so it, even though peasants weren't expressing their discontent at the ballot box as they were in Taiwan and South Korea, they were expressing it in um, localized protests. Um, uh, but even though they were local, they were very widespread. So if you read the literature uh, from the late 90s and the early 2000s about rural China, it's this story of just a rising tidal wave of unrest. Um, and so it gave, you know, I'm not just talking about Western scholarship, I'm talking about Chinese scholarship and also the emergence of this whole literature called the Sennel literature, the three rural issues literature, uh, Sennel being Chinese shorthand for villages, agriculture, and farmers. Um, and so the leadership transition was a time period for uh, when awareness of this protest was already in existence and it was an opportunity for people writing about the Sanlong problem to kind of advocate for a policy change and get their word out. And then finally, um, in the book, I talk about policy learning and in the article that um, Meg mentioned in the introduction that I have um, forthcoming, um, I really talk about how all of these countries, uh, you know, adopted very similar policies and China in particular is very interested in what South Korea did um, in the 1970s and explicitly modeled the new socialist countryside after the new village movement of the 1970s. Okay, so I've said a lot. I just want to now highlight a few key insights from the China chapter before um, I wrap up because I know this audience is, is a primarily a China interested audience. Um, so these are the key insights from the China chapter of the book. The first is that um, local governments in China lack both the capacity and the will to organize rural society um, into cooperatives or other types of rural collective organizations. And this has been an ongoing issue since decollectivization in the 1980s. It was intensified with the tax reform and recentralization in the 1990s which uh, reduced the fiscal capacity of local governments, but also their organizational capacity. So even though the central government is advocating, it acknowledges that farmers' organizations are crucial to rural development and it's advocating them, um, it's still difficult for local governments to actually get farmers to go along with um, joining these new farmers' organizations, the farmers' professional cooperatives. Even though official statistics show that the numbers have increased dramatically, from less than 100,000 officially registered FPCs, FPCs rather in 2006 to about, I'm forgetting what the number is, like a million of them 10 years later, um, even though it increased exponentially by a factor of 10. Uh, survey after survey by Chinese scholars and studies by Western scholars all confirm 
that these are really kind of briefcase or shell cooperative organizations. So that's kind of the first big insight. The second big insight of the China chapter is that post-Mao campaigns are commandist, but not participatory. Um, and when I, I borrow that language from some of the classic literature on Maoist campaigns, um, Gordon Bennett, James Townsend, Charles Sell, who talked about these commandist and participatory impulses in the, in the Mao era. Um, and I think, um, uh, you know, many of those scholars predicted that campaigns would survive the post-Mao transition, and they have, as um, many scholars have shown, campaigns still occur in China today, even if the central state doesn't call them campaigns. But one of the points of the book is that they are commandus, they are targeted at the bureaucracy itself and participation is encouraged, but it's not required. Um, and there is a real downside to that, which is that the potential beneficiaries of the policy are left out of the policy process. They're left out from influencing these policies that by definition are meant to transform their lives. Um, and so that's the real downside of this new version of campaigns. Um, third, I argue that the center's mobilization capacity is strong, but its oversight capacity is weak. So China has this incredible capacity to mobilize people. And the, and the problem is not that local officials are going to neglect central policy, but rather in the context of campaigns, they're going to take central policy to extremes and be overzealous in implementing it. And the central government has a really difficult time monitoring the quality of that implementation. Um, and so there's this paradox between a strong mobilization capacity and yet a weak oversight capacity. Um, and I mentioned before that the policy kind of collapsed into this housing policy. Initially, the goal of the new socialist countryside with regards to the village environment was to implement moderate changes, to upgrade public infrastructure, to pave roads, to um, bring cleaner wa clean water to the villages, to bring trash collection services and, and create uh, better trash disposal systems in the villages. But it kind of morphed into this policy to completely demolish and rebuild villages. And oftentimes that involved relocating farmers to entirely new developments. And I argue that this new housing-centered model of development is really, really different than the old TVE-led model of development that characterized rural change in the 80s and the 90s. Now, instead of enterprises leading the transformation of the countryside, we have this housing being built without the attendant growth of non-farm jobs, which creates all kinds of difficulties for the residents. Many people have to give up farming and at this, because they've moved away, far away from their fields and it's become inconvenient and the new housing doesn't accommodate their machinery, their animals, uh, even their gardens. Um, but they also see an increase in their living costs um, because they now have to pay for utilities and other things that they didn't have to in traditional housing. So it's creating new kinds of economic problems and grievances and dependencies between the farm population, the effective farm population in the state. Um, and then I kind of conclude the chapter by saying that what we see with the new socialist countryside is a continuation of urban bias, even in the context of a pro-rural policy agenda. And that's manifested both in terms of the application of urban models of residential life to villages and also um, industrial models of scale agriculture to uh, what up to now has been a predominantly um, smallholder society. 
just to give you some visuals, um, uh, this is kind of an organizational chart I put together of Chinese farmers organizations. And most of them are registered, um, I mean, they're registered with county governments, but most of them operate and are only really connected to the village and the township government. So they really lack any connection to higher levels of the state that control resources and set policy. And they also lack autonomy. Most of them are set, set up by village governments or outside investors that are affiliated with agribusinesses. Um, and so uh, they've been dubbed by numerous studies I've seen as people, briefcase cooperatives that are kind of these shallow organizations. There's not real buy-in from the farm population. In contrast, this is an organizational chart of Taiwanese and Korean farmers organizations. This could also be applied to the case of Japan. And you can see here that they're closely linked to all levels of the state. And despite those close links with the state, they're also more autonomous, um, especially in Taiwan and Japan. I didn't really talk about Nokio today, but Nokio is famous for having an outsized influence on, on Japanese politics. Um, given the size of the rural population, it's still an incredibly strong um, farmers organization politically. Um, and just to you know, give you a, a visual of what these villages that I investigated in China look like, I took these photos of neighboring villages in Jiangxi province. Um, this was a decade ago, this was 2010, but um, you can see the one on the left is a traditional village that has has yet to undergo the new socialist countryside. It had not yet implemented the policy and the village on the right had already implemented the policy. Um, and you can see it's dramatically different. Um, and so the campaign had this really profound effect on the village environment. And this is true of the other cases as well, uh, but the changes that occurred in Taiwan and South Korea were a bit more modest. Um, and then, uh, you know, this is a village still where people live in separate housing, but here we can see this is a picture I took in Hubei province, essentially the creation of apartment style housing in the countryside um, and the consolidation of rural housing, which occurred uh, with the new socialist countryside under Hu Jintao has just uh, continued under Xi Jinping, especially as he embraced new style urbanization and then his anti-poverty campaign, and most recently the rural revitalization strategy. These relocations from farming villages, traditional housing into apartment housing has just continued. Um, so just a few final thoughts. This will only take me a minute. I'm sorry if I've spoken too long. Um, in terms of the broader implications of the study, um, the common use of campaigns in the region, I think, presents a challenge to the development of state literature. And, and many of you may know this is an older literature, but it's actually been revived in recent years as experienced kind of a resurgence in the 2010s. Um, and this literature portrays East Asian governments as having a technical, rational approach to policymaking. So by showing that campaigns can succeed under certain conditions, um, the analysis departs from that model. It also departs from theories of failed state-led development, um, such as you know, uh, James Scott's famous book, Seeing Like a State, which kind of characterizes state intervention in the countryside as, as almost pathologically destructive. Um, it departs from that literature and says that campaigns can sometimes work under certain conditions. It also challenges the Lewis model because it shows that rural development was really a lot more complex than the release of surplus um, labor or land reform followed by the release of surplus labor and then the trickle down effects of industrialization. Instead, it really was characterized by, um, you know, strong institutional presence in the countryside facilitating growth in agriculture and then these campaigns to really transform the countryside. 
And then finally, unlike the peasant politics literature, uh, which focuses on, usually focuses on resistance and in informal institutions, um, the book shows that peasants can actively be involved in the development process through formal organizations with close ties to the state. And in that way, I'm building on uh, the researcher, uh, research of others, Delassen, Apoff, and Esmond, um, who stressed the importance of having strong organizations um, in rural development. But I'm also saying something about mobilized participation, um, which China scholars tend to associate with Maoism. But what my study shows is actually common throughout the region, um, and it has been central to uh, rural transformation in East Asia for over a century. So the punchline of the, the, the concluding line of the presentation is that, you know, campaigns in China are not just malice. Um, so thank you very, very much. Um, I hope you enjoyed the presentation. I look forward to your questions. Um, so I'm going to just stop sharing my screen now. Thank you for that. Um, hopefully people um, got excited about reading the whole book, which is just incredibly rich, both with um, with the insight, you know, but also with the incredible research that you did in um, three different places and on Japan. Um, so I'll start with a question from Elizabeth Perry, who I know is known to you. Um, she says, thanks for a terrific talk. Um, she says, you say central control, cent strong central control over local government is essential for campaign success, but weren't many rural campaigns in the PRC, land reform, collectivization, the four cleans, launched precisely because the central government didn't trust the local bureaucracy to implement central policy. And so it dispatched work teams to circumvent grassroots officials. Were all of these campaigns failures then? Mm -hmm. You may be able to see it in the Q&A box if that helps you. <laughs> yeah, thank you for reading that. Let me just see it really quick. Uh... The last one so far. So sometimes campaigns seem to be, uh, well, I won't, I won't paraphrase mm -hmm. this, but sometimes campaigns seem to be an alternative, right? When the central government doesn't control the local government. How do you think of those? Yeah, no, I think campaigns, I, 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 I agree with that view. I think campaigns, including the new socialist countryside, like I think certain policies are launched as campaigns in order to overcome bureaucratic resistance and bureaucratic inertia, right? And work teams are one way of doing that. So dispatching, for example, like county level work teams down to townships and villages in order to, um, overcome uh, local bureaucratic resistance. Um, I think the problem is that when there's no oversight over those local cadres, work teams, uh, when you know there's not an authority besides the county government itself that dispatched them to oversee the quality of their intervention, then it can lead to things being kind of taken to extremes. And those extremes could include violence, um, it could include, well, you know, the outcome I focus on in my talk is um, kind of extreme implementation of housing policies. Um, but it could also mean economic disaster. It, and it's not to say that they failed to implement the policy. It's that they kind of were overzealous in implementing the policy, which created all of these negative um, outcomes. So I think that oversight of local implementing authorities, whoever they may be, is, is an important ingredient for um, campaign success. Uh, a related question comes from Hao Chen, um, who asks, how do you measure central control or bureaucratic control? And mostly, how do we distinguish it across different campaigns? So I think it's kind of similar to um, Professor Perry's question in that way. So how do we know which campaigns have central control and which don't? Or would you say that all state mobilized campaigns, especially in, in China, um, lack that central coordination? 
And he also asked, basically, based on your theory, do you think C's rural poverty alleviation campaign, which is ongoing now, is successful or not? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think, I don't know if I want to say something as bold as all campaigns in China lack central control, but I kind of agree with that. <laughs> um, because I think it has to do with the scale of the state. I think it's really, really hard for Beijing to collect accurate and good information about what's happening at the local level. Um, and I think that also China's political system is just much more decentralized than the other systems that I was studying um, in South Korea and Taiwan. Um, I don't have a precise like quantitative measure of how to look at central control, but I look at different aspects of it, such as, you know, our local officials um, being uh, monitored regularly by outside inspection teams. Are there centrally determined targets that they have to meet? Are there audits of their work? Um, like what is the kind of command structure? What is the promotion structure? Um, and uh, yeah, how regular are these outside inspections, et cetera. Um, and it, from that, I think you can get a sense of like whether central control is present or absent rather than precisely like how strong it is. Um, and then what was the other part of the question? How measure and then how to just- And then how about C's anti-poverty campaign? Oh yeah. Poverty alleviation campaign that's ongoing. Or maybe it concluded actually this year, right? Poverty. Yeah, it's supposed to conclude in December. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, so one thing that I think is different about C's uh, poverty alleviation campaign, which is a positive thing, is that um, there is a, a bit more central control over the campaign than there was during the Hu administration. And one kind of key difference is that subsidies um, are now directly administered to affected households rather than going through multiple levels of the fiscal transfer system um, and then entrusting local officials to disperse those subsidies. Um, so that's kind of a workaround, right? Um, it's, it's a way of uh, going around local officials. Maybe that's, that's different than central control. Um, but I, I think it's had the effect of at least making sure that the funds that are in, you know, intended to be used for anti-poverty are actually reaching affected households. And so in that sense, there's greater central control over funding um, for the campaign. Um, but I do think that, you know, the poverty alleviation campaign also relies on local reporting. I mean, if you read some of these like news stories about, uh, you know, the poverty alleviation campaign trying to meet this end goal of finishing by 2020, it's all um, saying that, you know, these different counties and provinces are self-reporting that they have successfully eliminated poverty. And, you know, there's, can we trust what they're saying? Um, I was even reading yesterday that, you know, Xi Jinping has decided they're going to, the government of Xi Jinping has decided they're going to do a big audit or examination of the results of the poverty alleviation campaign and then announce those results in the first half of next year. Um, because I think that they want, they, they don't want to claim victory before they've, you know, successfully verified uh, what all these counties are self-reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, another set of questions uh, from a couple of people, including Ihali and Iza Ding, I think, although it doesn't say <laughs> which Iza it is, um, but I think um, are about farmers' organizations. Um, mm -hmm. So it's interesting. So Iza's question is really about how you think of the or the landscape of uh, farmers' organizations, whether they're organized by the state or organized by you know 
they're self-organized. Um, and putting that in dialogue with work by Lily Tai or Dan Mattingly and others that shows either organizations can be, you know, powerful um, forces for public goods or forces for representation for farmers. Whereas I think Dan Mattingly's take is more that they're kind of sources of state co-optation and state coercion in different ways. And so how would you think of the organizations that you study and which organizations are likely to represent farmers' interests are likely to facilitate control by the state or do not really see it in those two terms? And then Ehau's question, which is related, kind of comes to the question about linkage between farmers' organizations and higher levels of the state in China, and particularly asked about the um, the Gongxiaoshi, the um, All China Federation of Supply and Marketing Cooperatives. Is this a meaningful organization? Does it play any role? Yeah. Um, okay, so I think um, in the areas where I was doing research, there's a traditionally like very strong lineages that are present in those areas, and um, you know, I think that if the cooperatives had maybe been built on top of that kind of natural organizational infrastructure, they perhaps would have been stronger, um, but that's not how they were organized. In fact, I think that like the farmers organization, the farmers professional cooperatives um, are distinctly seen as um, companies really. Like they have, a, there's a very kind of corporate view of what these organizations should be. Um, and that's different from a social organization or a more multi-purpose organization than you would find in the other East Asian cases. Um, and so, um, but they're also not very successful companies compared to other types of agribusinesses. And so people don't have a lot of incentives to um, join them. Um, I think, you know, Lily Tai's work and Dan Mattingly's work is, is, is a lot about lineage associations. Um, I think that lineage organizations in some cases may be working together um, to form cooperatives, but, you know, not really, like not in, not in the places where I've observed. I think that much more so it's local governments basically just trying to attract entrepreneurs or, or investors to create these commercial organizations and then um, trying to reach out to farmers who would um, essentially be workers for them. It's kind of this model, it's like a cooperative model, but really the members are just kind of like laborers for um, the organization. Um, and then in terms of the Gongxiaoshe, um, they still exist. Um, the FPCs are, um, you know, so there's so many different kinds of, of cooperatives in China. And those are traditionally the ones that, you know, uh, were established in the 1950s during the Maoist period, and they continue on through the present. Um, and I didn't really, I don't think that the state is actively pushing people to be more active members of those organizations. Rather, they're trying to direct people to join these other these other farmers professional cooperatives. It's also possible because there's been different reform initiatives with those supply and marketing cooperatives. It's also possible they're trying to reform the supply and marketing cooperatives to be more like these professional organizations. Um, but I just don't know how those reforms are going. I haven't thoroughly investigated them, but I can say with confidence that the, the state's energy and resources has been primarily focused on developing these FPCs, these, these farmers Yeah, thank you. Um, and so we have another question um, from Andrew Fang on the rural reconstruction movement, kind of looking backwards. So, in the, you know, but referencing it. So in the 20s and 30s, it's often seen as failed experiments. Um, 
And so today, uh, many NGOs that seek to improve rural education face a lot of pressure from the government. And so what role do you think non-governmental organizations or projects play in rural development today in any of these countries, China, mm -hmm. Taiwan, or South Korea? And there are there ways, he asks, um, for, that they could overlap with top-down development campaigns to improve local conditions? Is there any role, is there any role basically for private or NGO type players? I think there is. Um, so I think that before the new, one thing to note is that before the new socialist countryside, there was a new rural reconstruction movement that was um, kind of the brainchild of Hu Feng and uh, Wen Tiajun and some other uh, new left. I don't know if they like being called new left or not, but that's how they're often described, new left intellectuals in China. Um, and the new rural reconstruction movement harking back to, it takes its name from the, you know, the earlier Republican era campaign. Um, the rural reconstruction movement of the 20s and 30s. Um, it was really about creating strong civil society organizations at the village level, um, including elderly associations um, and um, other, other organizations that were, were not necessarily engaged in production, um, but had a more kind of well-rounded cultural and, and social function um, in the village. And I think that the government the Hu Jintao government did kind of take inspiration from the rural reconstruction, the new rural reconstruction movement. And in some cases where the new rural reconstruction movement was implemented, it worked with local authorities to devise kind of local new socialist countryside plans. So there was partnership between the state and then non-state initiatives. Um, but I think that uh, the logic of kind of these non-state initiatives the logic of campaigns is oftentimes at, at odds with these non-state initiatives um, or non-governmental initiatives because campaigns require meeting deadlines, meeting targets by certain deadlines, right? Um, and it's not about kind of like long-term investment in village institutions necessarily, uh, which is why I think so many of these farmers professional cooperatives have turned out to be kind of shallow. Um, and because of the strong mobilization capacity of the state, I think the local government has the potential, like local government initiatives have the potential to overwhelm activities that are happening in, outside of the state in the non-governmental sphere, right? The campaign can kind of crowd out other activities that are going on in the village, uh, which is unfortunate because I think like a more kind of, you know, the research that I read about the new rural reconstruction movement um, is very promising in terms of the benefits that it can bring to villages. Um, the downside of relying on non-government organizations, of course, is just the scale can't be matched by, you know, something that the state would do. So the new rural reconstruction project um, is limited. It's, it's limited because they have limited personnel. They have permission to work in limited limited areas, and so not too many places in the in, in the Chinese countryside have benefited. Even though the small number who have, I think it's been significant. In the other cases I looked at, there were there was a space for I think civil society to be active. Taiwan and you know throughout its entire post-war history had a really um, kind of vibrant uh, rural civil society organizations um, or village level organizations that I think were active participants in the community development campaign. So it wasn't just like state bureaucrats or work teams that were organizing these changes, but also um, I don't think NGO is the right term, but you know local based organizations, grassroots organizations were actively involved in the campaign. So there, there was a lot of overlap. Mm -hmm. 
Um, okay, so a question from Pat Gears from Wellesley College, who says, I uh, enjoyed this a lot. In terms of the China rural development campaigns, do we see any regional variations in terms of level of success, particularly because central control is difficult? Do we see any regions with patterns of relative success or relative failure? Um, so you talked a little bit about Jiangxi, but perhaps you could talk about whether there's regional variation within China. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, hi, Pat, I can't see you, but hi. Um, uh, so in terms of regional variation, um, I think uh, I didn't develop a theory in the book about success or failure within the country. Um, I think like I was torn in different directions between like cross-national level analysis versus subnational. I mean, there's so many ways that you could look at how things vary subnationally in China. But I think one significant thing that I found is that there's a lot of local models for how policies are implemented. So, you know, the, the one reason I studied Ganzhou is because it was upheld by the central government as um, a model for success in a lot of places, particularly near Ganzhou, replicated it. So Hunan and Anhui, which um, you could argue have similar kind of conditions, um, environmental and ecological, ecological economic conditions, they kind of modeled um, their policies after Ganzhou. And what that meant was an emphasis on um, kind of village environmental change and cooperatives in the absence of kind of close connection to um, larger cities or markets. Um, but I think in other places, um, kind of a more urbanized version of the new socialist countryside was implemented. So in Chongqing and Chengdu in the Sichuan countryside, for example, I think because the most relevant local models there were um, these, what they call, the central government called it uh, right? Like the integrated urban rural development models of Chongqing and Chengdu. These were introduced kind of in the mid 2000s. And because those places were designated as pilots for this new integrated rural urban strategy, um, I think places in those immediate areas and those, you know, neighboring provinces and countrysides, um, they kind of adopted that model of more long distance migration and kind of, kind of dovetailing the new socialist countryside with new style urbanization plans. And so people would move into more kind of apartment style housing in those areas. And then on the coast, in some cases, like housing wasn't touched at all in the new socialist, because they already had fabulous houses, I guess. But um, in some places that I visited in Jiangsu, for example, uh, they were more focused on the commercialization and scaling up of agriculture and, and tourism, developing uh, you know, tourism to the countryside as a way of generating new income streams. So I think that there was a lot of regional variation based on local, um, local success models. Um, uh, that kind of goes into this question from Liu Jundai, who says, congratulations on the book and about the three campaigns, what are the similarities and differences about their incentives and goals? And so for the constructing a new socialist countryside in China, it was not only driven by better governance, but also regime control. And so how do different regimes and their political designs play into the campaigns and their outcomes? Um. I'm smiling just because these questions are so great and so complex and hard to answer. Okay. <laughs> so, I think because people get to type them out. Um, yeah. Okay, but that is a great question. Um, similarity. So I 
I argue in the book that all of these campaigns were not just about development, but they were also about regime legitimation, right? Like campaigns can serve this development function where they can overcome resource bottlenecks and they can kind of speed up the pace of change and they can uh, go around, um, you know, officials who are status quo oriented officials who are against change. Um, but they are also in, and in that sense, they can, they can, you know, create positive development outcomes. But I think they also serve this kind of legitimating function for the regimes in power, right? Um, Park Chung-hee was trying to consolidate uh, a, a base of support in the countryside. To, and he, he really developed this kind of uh, image of being a rural populist um, in South Korea. And populism is not something we really associate with East Asia, but this is definitely what Park Chung-hee was trying to do. Um, you know, he he really sold himself as a son of the soil. Um, he was, after all, a child of, of farmers. Um, and I think um, his transition to, you know, that was about consolidating his authoritarian rule and making sure he had this really stable base of power in the countryside as the political atmosphere in the cities became more contentious. Um, in Taiwan, I think um, maybe to a little bit lesser extent than Park, but Jiang Jinghua, um, Chiang Kai-shek's son and successor, he was also motivated by this kind of rural populism. He wanted, he didn't want to take over from his father in the 1970s uh, without the support of, you know, the Taiwanese rural population. And he was concerned about their discontent. Um, and so, you know, the community development campaign was also his way of kind of, um, you know, shoring up his support in the countryside at a time of political transition when he was taking over. And then in China too, I think that, you know, Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, um, they, you know, they've been dubbed by some scholars as part of a populist faction, um, but I do think they were really concerned about their legitimacy um, in the countryside. And so part of the, I think a big message of the new socialist countryside was about telling, you know, these kind of weak and disadvantaged groups in society, the Ruoshi that the regime still indeed did care for them. And it was time for the government to kind of reverse course and, and really demonstrate materially um, their concern for the rural population. Um, and so I do think it was just as much about legitimacy as it was about any kind of development issue. Mm -hmm. um, my colleague Gao Wen Lei has a question. Um, thanks so much for your great talk. Um, her question is about incentive structure. So there are a lot of problems with China's cadre evaluation system. Mm -hmm. um, and she says, I'm wondering whether the three countries had different models of target setting. So, um, you know, when we think of target setting in China, sometimes, you know, target setting works. Other times, you know, there's excessive focus on the target, as, you know, it, it kind of to the detriment of every other outcome. And so are the, is it a difference in targets or I'm now like modifying her question because I'm yeah. super interested in the same thing. Is it a difference in just the targets and how the targets work or is it like the politics that surround meeting the targets if that makes sense as a distinction? Yeah, so in all three cases, there were targets that were set by the central government. They were assigned kind of quantitative points and translated into local implementation plans and people had to, you know, their promotions were at stake, right? I think that in all of these places, the campaigns did try to change the incentive structure of local officials um, through, you know, th through these 
in, in China, it's the cadre responsibility system and the annual performance contracts and um, that people that people sign, they have to meet certain targets. And it's also like the policy evaluations that take place. I think those things did exist in the other um, countries as in the other countries that I studied as well. Um, although I think one of the key differences is that my understanding of um, the Taiwanese and South Korean cases is that the the targets were often okay so the plans the, the specific implementation projects were determined at the village level with input from farmers right so it wasn't just like targets are set at the county government and then passed down and they have to be implemented um, there were these councils the community development councils in Taiwan and then the um, same all leaders the same all councils in South Korea that were involved that were in constant contact with government officials but also held kind of village level meetings um, where they live to get input on what projects should be implemented. And oftentimes they submitted those projects to higher levels in order to kind of get um, funding and resources. So I think the difference was um, kind of the origins of these targets, right? I think in the Chinese case, it's almost always top down. Um, Despite, I think there are localities that have tried to innovate and include kind of uh, lower level, you know, farmers organizations in the process. But I think for the most part, it's been top down, whereas I think in the other cases, kind of the, the broad targets are set top down, the specific targets are set very locally um, within villages. And that that makes a real difference. Mm -hmm. I have a question I've always wanted to ask. Okay. <laughs> is about um, the role of the appearance of the village environment. So what I think, one thing that I think is um, novel about your work is that, you know, political economy development work always looks at these like, you know, economic outcomes, right? That are, you know, you know peasant incomes, right? Prices, poverty rates, those kinds of things. Whereas, you know, a lot of what you take seriously is um, improvements in the village infrastructure. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about why it is. Why is that an important thing to look at? And why is it that it seems that regimes that were very different regimes, right, all seem to take that as a serious outcome, as an important outcome? Um, and so I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about the village environment. Um, yeah, I think that this is often something that especially like scholars of development don't really take seriously, um, right? And people are skeptical of it because they think one, it's a private good, like what business does the state have um, intervening in the design of housing, for example, like this should be determined by individuals. Um, they also think that, you know, you can point to historical examples of states intervening in the village environment and that resulting in like disaster. And the most famous of these documented by many scholars is in Tanzania, the Ujamaa village campaign, this kind of like campaign to create planned villages resulted in, in economic devastation. Um, but I think that in East Asia, and I'm gonna say for whatever reason, which doesn't really answer your question, but for whatever reason, um, <laughs> governments have, have long taken very seriously uh, their role in making sure that people live in safe and comfortable housing. Um, and that, you know, they, there's, there's a local authority that's responsible for making sure that your housing doesn't collapse during a mudslide, right? Like it, it kind of a basic safety precaution. Um, and there's real demand for that. This is not, you know, like one of the things that I had to keep reminding myself when I was traveling in the Chinese countryside is that this isn't all 
top-down state-driven because people want, like governments want to grab people's land and move them into modern-looking housing and impress the higher-ups and project an image of modernity. Certainly that's there, but it's not, that's not everything that's driving it, right? There's also demand for um, these policies because for many farmers, like the New Socialist Countryside was the very first time ever um, that the government had provided them assistance um, with housing and they were so grateful for it. Housing in the countryside is this, you know, symbol of your status, of your wealth, and it's a way of attracting marriage partners and business partners. And in some cases, people really were living in dangerous housing and they, you know, blamed local officials for neglecting them for so many years. Um, you know, the creation of these new homes was, you know, a positive thing for many people who had been living in mud brick homes in many cases that had been built even before the Chinese Communist Revolution. Um, and so I think that um, there's demand for it uh, on the part of farmers um, who don't often feel like they have the means to improve their own homes and see all the government investment in urban infrastructure and feel like they have been neglected, right? And then there's also, I think, I think a desire on the part of the government to intervene. And again, it's not just for show. Um, I think it also has to do with like concerns about um, safety. And in some, in some cases it's, it's, it's modest goals. It's about like just connecting villages to the electricity grid um, and making sure that safe and potable water can be delivered, that people are on, are, are, um, you know, can be connected by public transport and things like that. Yeah, I always remember, and I think I've told you about my visit to the new Socialist Countryside exhibit at the Chongqing Museum, where you could go and take these interactive things, like my village should have, you know, running water, this kind of thing, you know, put your, to your toilets that are, you, you know, are is safe and yeah. clean and sanitary. And it was all kind of like, do you know enough about what your village should look like? And I always thought that it was interesting, but it was, but also seeing people there who thought it was like amazing to see that, that it wasn't, you know, a corny or for show thing, that it was really meaningful right. for those villagers. Yeah. Um, well, what thank you so much. On that, May. Oh, you're okay. frozen a little yeah. bit. Go ahead. Go ahead. You were frozen a little bit. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I was just going to say one last thing on that. Um, am I unfrozen? Yeah, you're unfrozen. Yeah, okay. Um, is that I think because there's been such mass migration from the countryside um, to the cities um, in China, there is this perception too that there's a lot of abandoned housing and abandoned infrastructure um, and wasted resources, right? And so the state has an, it, it desires to kind of fix that problem. Um, and I, I read the same thing about Korea and Taiwan in the 1970s. Um, housing became a target of the campaign because especially in South Korea, there had been so much out migration away from the villages to the cities. Um, and the state, you know, really felt like it needed to kind of fix that problem because it wasn't being resolved, you know, privately. Um, so that was just kind of my last thought in, in response to your question. Um, but yeah, thank you. Um, it's wonderful work. So I'm um, glad you got good questions from our group. Um, and thanks to all of you who attended. I have such good questions. I apologize to people if I didn't answer them very well. Please feel free, because I can't see the participants. Please feel free to, you know, reach out to me and, and connect. I'd love to hear from you. 
Um, that's great. Um, and we look forward to the world politics article coming out, I guess, April or spring or at some point, but well, yeah, April. Um, thank you so much, Meg. All right. Thank, thank you, you um, Professor Looney. And thanks to all of the attendees. Um, yeah. Bye. Thank you.